Hello, we are the Edgy Futurists. I'm Dan Fitzpatrick. I'm Ben Whitaker. And I'm Stephen Hope. The podcast by educators for educators, the Edgy Futurist Podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Edu Futurist podcast. On this episode, we are joined by Paul McKean. Paul is the head of further education and skills at JISC. Uh, JISC are a UK organisation that provides digital solutions for education and research. And Paul provides JISC with strategic direction around its work in further education and skills. He works with colleagues across the sector to ensure that JISC helps its members and their staff utilise technology so they can meet the needs of learners and employers. The intelligence, intelligence, easy for me to say, Paul Gathers, helps GIST directorates plan and respond to the ever-changing needs of their FE and skills members. He was a mature FE student himself who retrained in multimedia and web design, became an FE lecturer, then a manager, and continued his studies uh, achieving an MSc in e-learning and multimedia some years later. You can follow Paul on Twitter at EdTechMcKean. The podcast by educators, for educators, the EduFuturist podcast. Hi, Paul. Great to have you on the podcast tonight. Hi, Ben. Nice to be Yeah, so um, just before we went on air, we were just talking, this is another um, a member of the Northern Powerhouse over the hill in Ramsbottom. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> snowy, snowy Ramsbottom. <laughs> So we, um, we, we, it's really great to have you on tonight, and uh, we haven't got Steve with us tonight. He's, uh, he's otherwise engaged. I think he's, I think he's a bit boring, really, to be honest. So, um, but uh, he, he found out you were coming on, and was really desperate to get back on. But we said no, you can't come back in. So we, we want to talk to you and get into talking about what JISC is, because uh, obviously you're involved there. What, what the, what the purpose is, why they do it, and, uh, and then we can have a little bit of a look about what, why JISC is important in this sector. Can you just give us a bit of an intro about what JISC is. Yeah, absolutely. So JISC is the education technology charity that supports further education, higher education and research. So fundamentally, most people who are in education within them sectors will know JISC for the Janet Network. So effectively, we we are the internet service providers for colleges and universities uh, across the UK. So it isn't just England, England, Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. And we also provide um, shared services so negotiation, uh, so we, we provide, for example, a catalogue of e-textbooks. So all FE uh, students across the UK would get access to them, uh, e-textbooks e um, on what, what is a concurrent licence. So effectively, multiple learners can access that book at any one time. That's not something that's normally available to the open market. So if a college was to go to a publisher, they would generally get one licence for one head. So 20 people, 20 licenses. So we're able to provide the sort of uh, scale negotiation and sector-wide deals. We also provide advice and guidance for the sector to hopefully enable colleges and universities to utilize technology to the best of its ability to help ultimately the people that we're in all in education to support. And that's the learners, give them the best learner experience, hopefully the best opportunity of being successful and to succeed and hopefully to move on to either higher education from FE or into employment. That's cool. That sounds, and, uh, sounds amazing. And that whole area of digital solutions is why I know it's an obvious question, and, and and I think all three of us know the answer to it. But just for our listeners, why is digital so important? Oh, that's a great question. I, I would actually go back and say digital isn't important unless it needs to be. Okay. So digital isn't always the solution, and I think there's a danger when we we talk about digital, we start talking about hardware, software solutions, shiny kits. 
And actually, that's not the case. So for what I would say, and, and maybe unusually for somebody in the technology sector, is to say we need to understand the problem first. So if there is a problem in the education space, if, if learners are failing to engage in education, if there's an issue with, say, a particular type of um, pedagogy, maybe formative assessment is difficult to achieve because learners are more reluctant to stick their hand up and, and give their feedback. Maybe technology is a route to enable them to engage uh, more effectively and, and to, to really shine and uh, engage in the, in the learning experience. So really it's, uh, it's, it's about the, the right technology if, it's, if there is a particular problem in the first place it's trying to solve. I think, that's, I think that's massive. And I suppose for a lot of people who are starting out on this journey or even people who have been on the journey into using technology in education for uh, any length of time, it can often become a rabbit hole, can't it? That you go down and you feel like, oh, I need to use VR. Why am I, I'm seeing some people using VR. I've got to use VR. Or um, we don't have that many iPads or Chromebooks or whatever else it is. And so we need to buy more. And that, that's, it's, it's amazing that, that we're hearing that from people who are sector-wide. That we, what, you, what you actually just said then is, don't just buy tech for tech's sake or don't even just invest in, in in trying to make everything tech solution or digital. What you're saying is find the problem and then find the appropriate tool for that solution, whether that is a, a whether that is a technical or not, a digital or not. No, absolutely. And I, th I think there's, there's a, a number of approaches you can make. I mean, from a GIST perspective and in my role, we look at it very strategically. So we'll come at it from a, a whole institutional perspective. And what we say to organizations is, you know, what is your vision? What is your expectation for the learner experience? What, what is it that you, you're trying to provide to your learners? And ultimately that would be a, a, a level of experience, a certification or accreditation, which enables them to progress into, let's say, higher educational work that's in the FE space. And then what you can do uh, with that organization is help them understand where the technological touch points can be to enable that better and improved experience. Um, many learners come into, into colleges and universities these days with an expectation that digital is gonna be there. But you know you need to step back because the, their uses of technology are not necessarily the same ways you would use it for learning. It is for you know the, the social and the, the other, other aspects of their life. That's not to say some of the similar technologies can be used in education, of course they can, but it's about using it appropriately and safely. And that's one of the other sort of uh, issues with people sort of throwing lots of different technologies at people. It's making sure that they understand why they're using it and, and that they're using it in a safe and appropriate manner. And I guess that's yeah. why it's important for the, I guess, the overall institution strategy to be right as well, doesn't it? That you're not just having uh, random pockets within an institution try uh, doing things and, and, and saying if it works or not, it might not work. So or that teacher just doing things for the sake that they like it, um, but actually that it's integrated into how how that educational institution works. Um, could you maybe, because I know you, you kind of, you, you do some work around the strategy of um, especially FE. Uh, how, how is that done well? How is, is, it, is it being done well in the UK? Because I know we look at a lot of examples from around the world a lot, but yeah, is it, is, or do we have colleges in the UK that are a shining example of that? I mean, I think there are a, a number of examples of colleges that are doing really well. And again, where it, where it is happening, I mean, I'm very fortunate that I'm uh, an association of colleges Beacon Award Assessor, just um, sponsor the Effective Use of Technology Awards. So as the, as the sponsor, I get the good fortune of walking around and, and seeing lots of good practice in operation across colleges across the UK. 
and it is literally across the UK. And what I would say is that the one thing that has been in common of maybe the last four or five awards, and more generally, any anyone that's got shining practice is around culture and leadership. Um, you, you just talked about pockets of practice, and, and that, that happens a lot in many, many organisations, but there isn't that uh, systemic view of technology and the uptake, and that's only really achieved where there's true leadership. And a lot of that leadership has to be the faith in, as I say, the vision and how technology fits into that vision. So the, the vision needs to be there and the leadership is there without technology. And then it's about the leaders understanding how technology is an enabler. Um, it, it can uh, drive change and drive opportunity in that space. And I think what we see, I suppose the flip side, Dan, is the, is the, is the other bit where it's not about enablement and in actual, in actual fact there's barriers so people are talking about using this particular technology or this other and they haven't gone through uh, any uh, process of understanding how it's going to be uh, embedded strategically across the organization and, and no doubt the IT department will have a, a thought about whether it should be used at all and practitioners may not have an understanding of how the particular technology works or operates or why it's beneficial whereas when it's done the right way there's a complete buy-in by the staff, by the leadership, the training, and the uh, the upskilling is provided to the staff as well. So they're not just being uh, you know, lumped with a load of kit and uh, asked to get on with it. It's a very clear view of why it's being used. Now, it doesn't always have to come out. Uh, the, the, there's an expectation this technology will work in a particular way. Sometimes there is a lot of innovation. It's the creativity of teaching staff, and ultimately teachers are very creative. Now, they're not... not uh, any two teachers really teach the same session the same way and being given a tool um, by a, a type of technology that is a tool they can be as creative as, as uh, you know as they can be with that and then it's about sharing that practice and again culturally where that sharing and risk-taking uh, is supported that's where we see the, the greatest adoption because change really happens yeah that's that's absolutely key isn't it where there's that that vision for change and uh, and then a strategy that works alongside that vision so and i know that one of the things i think i i think i met you up in bolton actually when uh, when aftab was there talking about digital assistance um you might might, might not remember my pretty no, face I do, I do remember it aftab uh, <laughs> is doing the job that i left to join jisk so oh yeah. right okay amazing okay so uh, when when i um when we were there, one of the things that Aftab was talking about there, and Aftab was uh, where Ed Futurist of the Year last year, um, and he, for this very reason, because what he was doing in terms of building a uh, college campus assistance, digital assistance, was trying to do a lot of this removal of mundane uh, teacher admin using technology uh, so that teachers can do what teachers are good at doing, which is educating. And so that um, I think that's a, a huge, huge uh, deal and uh, i know that that's something that you guys have championed there and i suppose is is, is that something that you you could talk to us about about that removal of that teacher admin stuff yeah absolutely i mean the, you've hit the nail on the, the, the head there ben because the i i, I talk I'm, I'm going to uh, speak to a, a group of um hr directors tomorrow in birmingham um as part of a, an AOC briefing and i'll be kind of mentioning uh, this to them there and the, the World Economic Forum Future of Jobs Report 2018, it's a very long read, uh, but there's a really great um, quote in there where it talks about all businesses needing what they call a comprehensive augmentation strategy. And to quote the uh, report, it's, it's an augmentation strategy is an approach where businesses 
but to utilise the automation of some job tasks to complement and enhance their human workforce's comparative strengths and ultimately to enable and empower employees to extend to their full potential. So if you, if you want to flip that from an educational perspective, um, what we're really saying is what, as, as AFTAB's identified, what mundane repetitive tasks, the, the bureaucracy burden, let's call it, can be removed from a practitioner, releasing them to do the, the humanistic, empathetic type of tasks in teaching and learning, which presumably they came in the, the career uh, to do. They were always going to want to support a learner, probably, you know, all intent and purposes wanting to do that one-to-one -one support. It's just not possible in the current funding structure that we have in, in all um, uh, sets of education. But by, um, if you like, the technology taking the, uh, the workload and reducing some of them repetitive tasks, it can free up the individual practitioner to give that more one-to-one -one support. Um, and also what it can enable is the learners themselves to uh, progress at their own pace, to get some real differentiated, personalized learning activity through adaptive learning opportunities. So I think the two things work together. So what I would say, and if there's a takeaway for, for my uh, slot on this podcast with you, is for anybody, whatever business you're in, it doesn't have to be uh, education. Think about what the augmentation strategy is for your uh, particular um, role or job. Uh, and there's some real simple things that work really effectively. Thinking about uh, technology taking the workload, and I, I, I presented at a conference in London yesterday, and the simple thing I used was on my phone, I used the microphone icon in notes, and started talking and of course I dictated whatever I was saying and it translated it or transcribed it in notes. The people in the room were kind of like, wow, this is amazing. But we all know that it's possible and we all know it can happen. But you think about translate that back to a teacher who's got to create lots of formative, constructive feedback for learners. They could simply use their phone to create that uh, formative feedback, snapshot it, then copy and paste it effectively into um, whatever platform that it is that they've they've got available for their learners to receive and that is a productivity tool you know it's something that's very simple but it can really transform the kind of workload that staff have at the moment um, but also enrich the kind of feedback that they provide because where they may have written one line in the past because they've got 36 students to do they can probably verbalize two or three lines worth of constructive comment in the same time frame so technology, in my opinion, in that particular circumstance, is enhancing uh, their job and, and their experience of the learners. Sounds, uh, it, it's this level of augmentation and this, I, I keep thinking all the time, I, I work in a FE college, look after um, a lot of repetitive tasks. And I, I almost said mundane then, but I meant repetitive. Things that you, like start data and, and reviews and, and things that you literally, if you had a machine or you had a, a CRM or you had a, um, a, a digital assistant to, to push that forward, you would, you, you could save hours if you could what at one click of a button, make it so that every, every trainer assessor had it in a meeting in their diary that would do this. And it's got this attachment in it. And it's that level of stuff that that's stopping you um, being productive in, in, in your role and being strategic sometimes, isn't it? It is. And I think what you just described, I think the, the phraseology is a macro. It's, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a set of um, actions within a uh, within a computer program that's that repeats itself. 
Um, and I think there's lots of productivity tools out there that could be used in that way if people thought about it that way. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll come back to Bolton because Bolton did win the Beacon Award that I assessed last year. Um, and one of the really positive things, and we really did have to eat this out of the team at Bolton, including Aftab, because I, I don't think they realised themselves the impact that it was having on the organisation. The, the census date, and for everybody around the world who's listening to this, that's the date of November the 1st, where it's the first kind of uh, time that a learner really counts on the uh, on the financial returns for a college. So up until the 1st of November, whether they leave or not, uh, they, they don't count financially. So there isn't a financial burden if they leave before that date, but there is after. But equally, if they leave before, then you know, you've know you lost them and you haven't got any money. Um, what Bolton have achieved through the Ada chatbot is they actually saw a 3% increase in their retention before that November the 1st date. And in discussions with learners, and obviously it's anecdotal because some of the learners, you know, um, may may have left and, and, and may not have experienced it themselves in the past. But what they were saying was through the aid of chatbot, in the past, they would have been given a um, a timetable when they first joined the college and they would have had it for a couple of days and then probably lost it and then knocked on a staff room door and got another one. And then two days later, maybe knocked again. But by week three, if they lost it, they probably wouldn't have returned. And this was the honest feedback the learners were provided. But they were saying, it doesn't matter with Ada because we can ask her every minute of every day and she's going to tell us without us upsetting a human being. And that's the kind of thing that it's not just the, the benefits of the lecturer, but that data, that information, which is available probably on a website or whatever else, is just available, not at, the, at, the, at your uh, fingertips effectively, but the, at the tip of your tongue, because it is a verbal request that goes in to uh, the Ada chat button. And just to spin that out a little bit more, which again, I don't think after had a, a, a recognized when they created the chatbot is through their management information systems it's got all of the data about learners retention achievement progression all of these kinds of attributes previously you had to go into a website you had to log in you had to find your course code you had to i'm, I'm sure there's educators now uh, living through this because they do it repetitively you then have to find your learner then you go in and find their uh, information about them and so on with the chatbot a uh, a member of staff can simply say, show me all my learners who've only got 95% retention and the list is there. So the, the, the inquiry effectively is being written on the fly through, through the verbal communication to the chatbot. That is driving the use of business intelligence, which has always been there, but in the past it's been thought or seen as a compliance issue that people are kind of saying, you must use this data, you must fill in this form, you must do whatever. But now because of this, um, kind of tool, it's enabled and, and enriched that experience for the member of staff, which really helps them support the learners because they can provide that intervention right, almost instantly, whereas before they would have never known there was an intervention required because it would have been too difficult, too many repetitive tasks for them to do to find that information. So just some basic um, kind of outcomes of what that chatbot's achieved. But I, but I have to say, um, that isn't available to everybody because you have to really have that interoperability and real um, real time data in the system for that information to be accessible. And that actually, uh, Bolton has driven the behaviours of the tutors. So the people who maybe in the past have been a bit reluctant to sign a register and mark everybody as president, maybe doing it a day late or whatever, they realise that by doing it instantly uh, or, or as immediate as they can, 
that information really helps them in their job and equally the experience of the learners who are participating in learning. Yeah, and we we uh, we actually had Ada on the podcast uh, off tab. Oh, did you? Yeah, <laughs> you yeah. conversed with her. Yeah. <laughs> well, we tried. Yeah, <laughs> it was interesting. Yeah, uh, we, yeah. Listeners can go back for to the episode with Aftab to, to check Ada out and all the amazing things that Aftab's doing at, at Bolton College. Uh, what I, Whenever we talk about this as well, I think I always think of it, I picture it in my head almost like a scale. And, and you know, like you've got those, the small jobs, like you're saying, the voice dictation, the, the ways that a teacher can, can automate certain jobs. Uh, but in my head, that's one end of the scale. And, and how far does that go? So, and I know we like to we like to have flights of fancy on this podcast, uh, fantasy on this podcast, and and think about what's future, the future of education going to be like in twenty, thirty, forty years time, and and as automation becomes a more commonplace, I guess, in terms of in terms of new technology, um, and we we're seeing within industry, we're seeing jobs going, we're seeing um, we're seeing factory workers um, not needed anymore because uh, an automated. Uh, robot arm can can do their job just as well if not even better especially when you look at things like welding uh, at what point do you think coming from the angle that that you, where you work at it just is it are we going to get to a point where it, the the basic job of a teacher in terms of the actual teaching so not just the admin tasks is going to be infringed by automation and um and i guess we see that i mean we were t- when we were talking to aftab uh, even he was saying it's getting to the point and i'm not sure if if he's ruled it out yet, but where Ada can actually um, serve knowledge on sub- on subjects within the college, so can actually provide um, the knowledge basis. Maybe maybe that I mean that's the bottom when you look at um, like something like Blooms. That's it's the bottom rung really in terms of in terms of knowledge, and a teacher does far more than that. But um, how much is it going to that automation going to infringe on a teacher's job, and and will and will teachers be what teachers are in 50 years time i mean it's a great question and i think i am going to refer back to the point i made earlier on yeah. which is augmentation strategy i i think that there is um a certain amount of myth busting that that i do on a regular basis um there's a office for national statistics report from last year that talks about one and a half million jobs being automated and it actually references he and secondary i think educators and i think it says 20 and 21 percent of these jobs are going to be automated yeah. in my view that's a nonsense okay. 21 percent of the job of the tasks that that particular practitioner does may be automated but we're not going to see a fifth of teachers made redundant because robots are going to replace them and i think there's a, a stark difference between the two things and i think it's really important that uh, people recognize that actually if you're what, what, what the EdTech strategy that DFE have brought out, what lots of people talk about when it comes to uh, education technology about reducing teacher workload, having 20% less of that job done by a person is reducing their workload and giving them 20% of time back. That means they can be more effective practitioners. They, as I mentioned before, can support on a more personal level the individuals who need it. I mean, I'm not quite sure now what the kind of average success rates are Certainly in the schools marketplace, in FE, probably in the 80s, sort of early 80s, mid 80%. Even if it's 85%, that means 15 learners in every 100 are failing or not being successful at the end of their course. In my view, if we're able to use education technology effectively, 
maybe 60% of them learners would progress anyway and be supported by machine learning, artificial intelligence, you know, nudge type learning, and, and that's great. Uh, if they're going to succeed, that's fantastic, although they do need to be stretched and challenged and to be pushed further. And maybe that's the role of the practitioner in that space. Then equally, you've got your other 15% who are going to need the support. And then there's the rest. And that's maybe when we start to get to class sizes of twos and threes and fours, where that practitioner really does need to kind of walk through, handhold, really give that scaffolding support to them learners that just isn't possible today because they've got a natural in, in, in well, I'm sure it's the same in schools now, of 25, 30 learners. So what the technology enables is that smaller class size that, that unfortunately can't provide. Um, so the, the redundancy is a nonsense. The, is, are the tasks the teachers going to be taken away to free them up to do better things? I believe so. But it's down to the practitioner and the learner because there's certain uh, levels of learners that are not going to be independent. So if you're going to get uh, you know entry-level learners, you're not going to enable them to sit on a computer and just work away. Why would you? The, one of the reasons they come to college um, is, is for sense of community and uh, you know uh, you know to work with others and and to get the other life skills. So I think the, there is uh, absolutely a opportunity for the for the role of the teacher to change. I think the, there is an opportunity for them to do more of what they want to do when they come into education, which is really to support learners. And I think if you told every practitioner that you come into contact with, you're going to have a hundred percent success rate at the end of your um, your academic year, I think that's the desire that they would have. But sadly, because of pressures, because of the burden of bureaucracy, because of lots of other challenges, they don't do that. No, and that's uh, that's really difficult, isn't it? Especially in this, the way that we, we're all acknowledging that we're in a very, very different way uh, in industry, a very different way in, um, I think this leads us nicely as a segue into into talking about Industry 4.0 and Education 4.0. The fact is, is that our the world that we are in, the industries that, that people are going back into, um, are increasingly becoming digitized, increasingly becoming more efficient so that there's that human element. I'm watching, um, working with lots of digital agencies who are, who are uh, who are automating lots of their tasks, um, even social media scheduling, for example, that once in a day would have been one person doing it, e even the speed that's happening there as well. And so I know that the just um, agenda around education 4.0, acknowledging that the workplace is changing. Um, I, I was reading um, the other the other week about that, the report that you wrote that was written in 2019 about um, needing students needing better preparation for digital careers. And some of the stats in there were like, were, were mind blowing really, um, thinking that, that students, it's, I, I'm quoting it here, it talks about seven in 10 students in HE and six in 10 in FE agree that when digital is used in, in, in their learning, they understand things better and enjoy learning more. Yet, I think there's that, I think there's a couple of things that we can go into, but that whole idea around digital in learning, some people are still a little bit reluctant, but the industries that people are going into, uh, they're not reluctant, are they? No, no, so I think you've, you've sort of hit the nail on the head, Ben, because I think there's, there's a danger that in education, we talk, we talk too much about digital skills and if you like the, what I've classified as digital skills for life, really, which is kind of the, the use of the internet to pay bills, you know, the, the use of social media to have a social life, these types of things. And then we, we get into what we would classify as digital pedagogical skills. So the way in which we use digital to deliver 
uh, teaching, learning and assessment. But the, the point that you've really picked up on, which I think is really pertinent, is the digital vocational skills. So what, what is it that industry or how is industry already taking advantage of technology um, and it is disrupting effectively that workplace? Um, and I think the, there is um, a real concern that not everybody is seeing that disruption coming over the hill. And it's not necessarily small, medium-sized enterprise. In some cases, it's larger industries. I mean, if you look at Kodak as an example, you know, Kodak that used to have uh, photo processing, you would get, you know, uh, develop your uh, film at the local chemist and you get a little orange dot on it to tell you that you haven't exposed or you'd overexposed it or whatever, you know, that, really got disrupted by digital uh, cameras and then ultimately Instagram as a sort of a, a place you know, where where, um, where photographs were uh, published to rather than uh, published on uh, on film. And similarly, things like Blockbusters, you know, video chain that you know, actually got offered, I believe, the opportunity to invest in Netflix, but turned it down. And Netflix, of course, came and uh, ate its lunch, so to speak. Uh, so as technology uh, disrupts and and transforms it is changing the way industry works so i think that there is a real need and this is probably less of a, an issue in the secondary space or even the, certainly in the primary space but certainly in fe and he there needs to be a better understanding in curriculum of what actual jobs we are training and preparing learners to do so for example if we're training people today to operate on a combustion engine uh, and in 15 years time, there isn't going to be any new combustion engines. That's not to say there isn't going to be old ones. Of course there will. There'll be many on the road for years to come. But we need to be doing both. We need to be training uh, new um, motor vehicle operatives, if you like, to uh, to work on the combustion engine as well as a, a battery. And and you know that is um, pretty much the case across any any vocational space, engineering and construction, um, you know, brick layers. Do, do we lay bricks? much anymore is it more about stapling things together particularly in sort of big builds and, and so on and prefabricated buildings these kind of things so it's technology is really disrupting and changing um uh, the workplace so we as educators need to uh, keep up to date with that and i think the what, what's really interesting is if you if you look at industry and, and, and a good example of this and, and, and this is many many times so it won't be the first time your your listeners have heard it you beam a surgeon into a operating theatre today from the early 1900s and they won't have a clue what to do or how to do anything. They won't be able to save anybody's life. But if you put a lecturer in front of a class today from the same period, they'd probably be able to teach uh, about history and you know other subject areas because the way in which that information is, uh, is kind of uh, didactically delivered can be done uh, the same way. Of course, it can be done differently but they could deliver it and get away with it. Whereas in, in the case of medicine, where technology is really advanced and, and made a difference, um, it, is, it is changing the way that, um, that field operates. One, one good example from, uh, from medicine, and this was uh, an oncologist that presented at the AOC conference last year, and they were saying AI now is that good that it can um, actually review a scan for cancer 10 times quicker than a human. Now, as a opportunity in that space uh, for the oncologist to basically diagnose 10 times more people but actually what the oncologist said was what that does is it allows me to spend time with the patient that I'm just about to tell some really life-changing news to and that again is, is another 
augmentation strategy. It's about saying we could do 10 times as much, or actually we could do many more, but spend the time with the individual who probably needs us most at that point in time. And that's the empathy. That's the real humanistic skills of that job that, you know, they're trained to do not only in the operating side of things, but dealing with people, you know, life-changing moments in time. So I think you're absolutely right. The fourth industrial revolution is changing the way the world of work happens, whatever industry it's in. I think what we need to think about, and I'll, I'll keep going back to this augmentation strategy, you as a practitioner, if you are one, or even a you know, support worker in a college, think about that um, surgeon or oncologist, the fact that they could do 10 times as much work, but actually what they want to do is spend the time with that individual. So translate mm-hmm. that into an education speak. You could get um, 85% of your class through in a, in a quicker time, or you could change what you do and get 90% of them learners through, which is more effort from you because you're going to do more personalised intervention and support. But hopefully that is more fulfilling uh, in, as a job role for you as an individual to, to get them over 5% through, but also it's changing the lives of the individuals that you're supporting. Yeah, it's yeah. massive, isn't it? I think that whole area of uh, disruptive technologies is so fascinating. Um, like you mentioned there with the, the camera and, and just what the, the... I remember few months ago going back and looking at um steve jobs speech when he introduced the iphone to the world and and just pretty much like the the tom tom was <laughs> like look like who who, yeah, yeah. who owns a tom tom now um uh the the camera the and I, we, we were talking to martin berm um who is uh he works at the business school in madrid um and he was saying that the apparently uh energy drink companies are having a, a real dilemma at the moment because once automated cars become mainstream, um, the their market, because apparently it's something like two thirds of energy drinks are sold uh, to drivers who are who are doing who are on the road. So they're having a dilemma where they're seeing in the next twenty thirty years their industry being massively disrupted because their their market for for selling those drinks is is going to be gone. It's just, it's just it's fa- it's just fascinating to me, but I. Just going back to what you were saying about schools, colleges being ready um, and and helping students be prepared for the workplace, or not just of the future but of now, really. Um, and and we can't escape. And we we come back to it quite a bit on this podcast, but we can't escape assessment, can we? And I, as somebody who works in a secondary school, um, we a lot of secondary schools are are teaching to the assessment, and 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 that's because. They're stretched. Their budgets are, are stretched, and and that's what they're judged on, um, ultimately. Um, how do we get past that? And I know you've you've you, JISC have have uh, been looking at assessment and um, and how the future of assessment will be changing. Could you maybe just delve into that a bit for us, Paul? Yeah, I think again, it's a really um, important area. Um, it's interesting, actually. I think yesterday there was a headline. I think it was on the BBC, uh, Wales um, are considering moving to a totally online GCSE. Yeah, I saw that, yeah. Yeah, simply because, uh, and, and actually David Jones, who um, yeah, I think made the comment, is on the Future of Colleges Commission. Uh, so he's currently working with um, lots of really high-profile people in the FE space to, to look at you know what the future college should look like. And... I'm a real big advocate 
of uh, the need for reimagining assessment and actually coming back to education 4.0 just has sort of four themes to that the first of, of which is um teaching transforms so that again <laughs> fits into that augmentation strategy for a teacher how how can the role of the teacher change to uh, to benefit and, and get best value out of out of technology and, and what does that mean for them then there's personalized and adaptive learning so that's really about using technology to provide that um, differentiated um, learning opportunity based on and in some some respects um, triggered from an assessment so where an assessment takes place and I, and I have to say that these types of tools have been available for many many years in in everybody's virtual learning environment but are very rarely used at all um, people use VLEs to uh, almost didactically deliver content again. It, they become repositories, and I've been saying that for what feels like the last 20 years, and it probably is. Um, but ultimately, if you use the assessment tools, I mean, as, assessment in any learning practice is the way in which we really understand where the learning is taking place. So the formative assessment tells us that they've completely missed what we've just talked about as a practitioner. Therefore, we need to repeat it. If we don't do enough of that, we... we tend to believe learners have learned when they haven't, and therefore that's why they fall behind. So enabling um, that kind of um, autonomous um, formative assessment, which is gonna give the constructive feedback to learners is a really positive way of reducing that workload and enabling that learner to progress at their own pace. But I think in the, in the more traditional assessment, summative assessment um, space, that's where uh, GIST really have a role to challenge and the future of assessment report that you've talked about, um, you know, we've certainly uh, recognised that, and I think we've got to go back to policymakers. So it's, it's probably easier in the HE space because HE obviously deliver their own degrees and got their own uh, metrics for uh, the assessment and how that assessment takes place. In the well, in the schools and FE sector, when we, we've moved uh, in FE to, to to catch up with schools, if you like, to the endpoint assessment position. Well, that is, you know, very much around written tests once a year or, or at the end of a two-year programme. And, and that in itself is going to be difficult and a challenge for the individual because of the pressure it, it puts people under, but also the, the, uh, the time it takes, the time lapse, if you like, between learning that skill, knowledge and behaviour and actually having it tested. Now, interestingly, we at JISCA are working with some awarding organisations at the moment uh, around things like um, uh, e-proctoring, so that's about uh, recognition. So I'm sat here in front of the computer screen. You're nowhere near me. You have no idea whether the people in the room with me, whether I've got literature to read, you know, whether I've got as much help. I've got an aider that I can ask who's going to uh, help me cheat get through an exam. But through e-proctoring, uh, through uh, retina scanning, and the the uh, sort of microphone and, and other aspects, it can tell whether I'm actually looking away from the screen or I'm actually participated in the exercise. That's been set so it can you, you've basically got a virtual invigilator that i'm sure could drive lots of things not least efficiencies because you don't need to have loads of people in one room at one time um, which can cost can be well particularly in the fe space at the moment we're seeing hundreds if not thousands of learners in certain circumstances resitting gcse english and maths because that uh, is compulsory if they haven't uh, achieved the right grade when they've uh, entered the fe environment so having that type of function, if, it, if an online exam is the right tool, and I would say it's important to recognise that, um, with, the, with the particular uh, awarding organisation we're working on, it's retina scanning in VR and AR headsets. Right. So it's 
mean that they're actually virtually participating in that um, uh, that actual haptic test, if you like, and it's able to judge whether they've uh, got competence. Clearly, it's it can't be sort of real endpoint competence because we want to see a bricky build a brick wall. We want to see a, an electrician, you know, um, complete a circuit properly and all of these types of things. But there is massive opportunity, I think, in the investment space. But there does need to be a challenge. Uh, because there's certain areas that are not uh, as life or death um, as some of the vocational areas that literally is about filling in um, competence uh, through basically a paper-based exam at the moment, but it could be digitised. Yeah, it's 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 really powerful. It's it's amazing, isn't it? <laughs> Just how that that whole that whole nature could uh, could change what we've known. We've talked about this exam room being the, the thing that's stopping technology go to the uh, become embedded in schools and colleges um the fact that they're gonna have to sit an exam at the end of this uh, in an exam hall that they've sat in that exam hall for 100 years and uh, that's what they do if we're changing exams then um there's no excuse anymore so yeah it's exciting and i know i wanted to get on before uh, i'm conscious of time as well and it's been amazing chatting with you but i wanted to chat a little bit about uh digifest i know that's something okay. that you really uh is steve's Steve's a big proponent of it, so I would uh, I would um, love you to talk to us a little bit and tell our listeners a little bit about Digifest. Yeah, absolutely, no problem. So Digifest effectively is the um, the national conference, I suppose, for GIST, where we bring together practitioners, managers, um, leaders from across the UK together to one space in the uh, International Conference Centre in, in Birmingham. Uh, on the 10th and 11th of uh, of March, so only a, only a few weeks away, and I believe the um, the opportunity to uh, book a place finishes early next week. So you've only got a couple of days to to uh, book your place if you haven't already. But it's a real opportunity to showcase the kind of examples of good practice that take place across both sectors, HE and and, and FE, uh, and for you to really learn. Hopefully, to take away some um, examples of practice that you can go and embed yourself fairly swiftly in your own organization or give you an idea of a direction of travel you want to to um, take yourself in i mean for, from my perspective the way that i've always advocated it is we it should be uh, the opportunity for practitioners in the sector to champion what they're doing so in in fe in england uh, well across the uk every college is a member of jisc and as a member of jisc we want to give them opportunities to, to talk about what they do. I haven't been in a classroom for a number of years. I'm still very aware, being in a fortunate position of going visiting classroom about the practice that takes place, but there's nothing better than hearing from the individuals themselves, from the experience of the learners. So we encourage the learners to come themselves to talk about how the, the use of a particular technology or a, a particular service or, or provision is changing the way that they engage in education. So. It's, it's really exciting. There, there is a, um, a number of sessions. I think one of them, going back to what we're talking about, Industry 4.0, um, my uh, my boss, so the uh, Managing Director of FE and Skills, Robin Gerber, is running a session with somebody from, I think, uh, one of the banks, Coca-Cola, and the Learning and Work Institute with uh, reference to the, the kind of digital skills that employers want today. So what are the digital vocational skills that they're looking for? So I'm really excited about that particular session. And then we've got a thought leader talking about digital transformation and, and, and what she, she worked for IBM 
uh, and, and what it means for her and, and what she she sees as the kind of um, approaches that leaders and organisations within the education space should go through to, to achieve that um, real uh, step change or paradigm shift, as we might call it, uh, to, to really deliver a brilliant, as I said, uh, digital learning experience. Yeah, that's cool. So what what, what is the deadline for tickets? Uh, I'd have to actually check, <laughs> but I'm fairly sure it's early next week. So it might be right. Wednesday to go out. Uh, this is 1st uh, of March. So this Sunday. It may well be the day that it goes out. Let's say if you're listening to this on the day it goes out, get down to the, the GIST <laughs> website and put your place now. Well, when when we put this out, we'll uh, we'll we'll put that in the promo as well, in the tweets and everything, so people know. I mean, I can have a look to find out before we finish if you'd like me to do that. Uh, yeah, if you want to, that'd be great. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think Steve's going down as well, which is uh, he, he's he's very excited about. Um, so he'll be representing Edgy Futurist there. He might even he might even have a T-shirt or a sticker or something on, so that people know he's there. He might even he might even hand some business cards out. You know, have we got t <laughs> Have we got T-shirts? I, I have. Have you not? Nobody, got nobody told me. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. We don't. They don't ship to Newcastle. Do you and Steve be? <laughs> you and Steve be making yourself T-shirts? Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> I've got a Patagonia bag as well. Did I tell you about that? <laughs> That's an inside joke that nobody's going to get. Yeah, very true. Uh, for, for the listeners, well, well, booking closes on the first. It says right. right. So yeah, so get your kit, get your, get yourself in. So we'll get this out. Uh, it'll be midnight on Saturday, um, and then we'll we'll tweet Sunday morning. Okay, so hopefully people will. But if you listen to this and it's it's the second of March or any further, then hard lines. <laughs> <laughs> But we will be in we will be in Birmingham the same time next year, more or less. So you've got fifty two weeks notice. <laughs> and there's still time to get tickets for the Edgy Futurist Summit and Awards on the tenth of July. <laughs> <laughs> nice plug there, Dan. Nice little plug. <laughs> Paul, it's been amazing to have you on uh, the podcast today. Thank you so much for your time, and uh, we really value the work that Jessica doing. Thank you for, uh, for for setting the bar high and helping us. Uh, I, I'm passionate about FE, as as you, as you probably tell. Um, and for FE and HE, people that are championing this and helping us get through that over that barrier is, is amazing. So thanks for all you do. No problem. I'm delighted to be here and thanks again for asking me. Cheers, Paul. <laughs>